for our prayer and thank you for our song. And we're very happy to have everyone with us today. And as you can see, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 8. We continue that great study. We uh, had finished the discussion about Stephen and this great uh, sermon of his in Acts chapter 7. And we were into the 8th chapter, and we want to look at a number of important points that we have covered and some that we will cover. One of the things that I think is very interesting about the 8th chapter is that there is um, great persecution that comes upon the church, and those who were facing persecution were scattered. They went into different parts of the world. You'll remember in Acts chapter 2, there were many different countries and nationalities represented, Jewish people had come to the Feast of Pentecost, 16 nations, and now they had stayed, but now, now they're leaving. They, they left because of the persecution, and they're carrying the gospel with them, and simply because of persecution did not stop the preaching and the advance of the gospel. They continued to preach and teach God's Word as this Christian made that person a Christian, and that person taught somebody else, and they became a Christian. So there was benefit to the persecution. God used the persecution that Satan brought upon the church for his benefit and for the greatness of the church. Well, it's just a beginning point that we make, and that is that persecution came upon the church and they were scattered abroad. Now we're introduced once again to a man by the name of Philip. Philip goes to Samaria. This conversion of the Samaritans, I would suggest maybe a type of bridge for what's about to happen. Uh, what we've done is we've seen about the conversion of the Jews on the day of Pentecost, but now we're talking about the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were, you know, the people who had been taken into captivity and the nation was destroyed, 721 B.C. Uh, Old Testament Israel, you and I studied considerably about that, and the Assyrians came and, and destroyed them and scattered them throughout the ancient Near East, and they lost their Jewish identity. However, the Samaritans still believed in the Pentateuch. They still kept the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, and uh, they continued to worship. Jesus talked to a woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. And so we see that the discussion of worship came up then. And so now we have an evangelist going to Samaria. Samaria is in the central portion of Palestine in Jesus' day and in the first century. You have Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, but right in the middle is called Samaria. And that's where they were living. The Samaritans were in that section. And so now Philip goes to Samaria to preach and teach the gospel to them. It's sort of a bridge, sort of a bridge from Jewish conversion now to Samaritan conversion. And when the Samaritans obeyed the Word of God, that didn't cause any real problem with the Jewish believers. You have Jewish Christians now that are obedient to the gospel, but when the Samaritans obeyed the gospel, that did not seem to cause any problems with them. They were accepting of them, even though there was a big difference between Samaritans and Jews. However, we're going to see another bridge a little later in the book of Acts, where Peter goes to the household of Cornelius. And now he's preaching the gospel to the Gentile, and a Gentile obeys the gospel, and when he does, that causes trouble. So when the Gentiles obey the gospel, they didn't want to have any part to do with them. But in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, there's a lengthy discussion about what was behind all that, the importance of that, 
that God was accepting the Samaritans and now the Gentiles, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, into the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom was for everyone, for the Jews, for the Samaritans, for the Gentiles. And so that's what we have here in Acts chapter 8. So that's the rationale behind it. That's the logical flow of this chronological history in the church, church in the book of Acts is now we have Samaritans receiving the gospel, which satisfies Acts chapter 1 verse 8, which, we, which I've called the key verse of the book of Acts. Because now it sort of gives you an outline of what's going on. Well, I talk and talk about these particular matters and these background matters, but let me get on to some specifics with regard to the text. And I want to talk about this man by the name of Simon. And you see Simon is converted by verse 9. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Uh, and they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Well, these magicians have been around for a long time. Simon couldn't do anything. It was a sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors type of situation, but he had the people convinced just like good magicians today have people convinced. I wonder how he did that. That's amazing. What sleight of hand and what trickery uh, uh, comes about. But the point is really for us in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Now you might want to focus in on verse 12. Because the contrast, it's a Greek word called de. De comes at the beginning of the verse, but it's a contrast. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the baptism, about uh, the kingdom of God. Let's talk a little bit about the kingdom of God once again. You see, the kingdom of God referenced a lot in, the, uh, in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's... Jesus came preaching the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some of you will taste of death, will not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. Mark chapter 9 verse 1. So you see a lot of reference with regard to the word kingdom in the gospel accounts. It's sometimes called the kingdom of God. It's sometimes called the kingdom of heaven. It refers to a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. The source of this kingdom is God. It's God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. He uses the word kingdom here to these Samaritans. Most of the time, maybe I shouldn't say most of the time, but the emphasis seems to be on the word church in the book of Acts. So now the kingdom is the church, the church is the kingdom, Matthew 16, 16 through 18. But the emphasis seems to be on the word church. But he used the word kingdom here, and that's what got my attention. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. Now that sounds a lot like we were in the gospel accounts there. But he's, remember, he uses the word kingdom to whom? These Samaritans. So these Samaritans would be familiar with the idea of a kingdom. These Samaritans would be familiar with the idea of a coming Messiah. They believed in a coming Messiah. In fact, in John chapter 4, this woman at the well says, Well, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all these things. And Jesus said, Well, I'm he. 
So they were looking for the Messiah. So the fact that he brings up the point about the kingdom is an important point because of his audience. They were referring to and looking for the coming of the Messiah as well, and he's preaching about the kingdom. Now notice the reference to the name and the name of Jesus Christ. It is by the authority of Christ. The name stands for all that Jesus was and is. This is in the name of Jesus, the authority of Christ. They were being baptized, men and women alike. So when you hear preaching about the kingdom and people respond, what do they do? They're baptized. Because preaching about the kingdom and preaching about Christ, as we're going to learn in this chapter, Acts chapter 8, refers to preaching about what it means to come to Christ. And what it means to come to Christ here, of course, is that they were baptized, men and women alike. So we see that the kingdom here uh, had application to the matter of what must I do to become a member of this kingdom. And of course, immediately we see something of the reference to they were baptized because that put them in the kingdom. That was the step that actually caused them to come to Christ, come into Christ, Galatians 3, 27, 26, 27. And so it's I always called it the threshold step. When you take that step, that's the threshold of being into Christ. Now, repentance, confession, faith are all essential to that particular matter as well. But it's when you are baptized, you're taking the threshold step. You're crossing over out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. And so we can see that here in our verse 12. Even Simon also, even Simon himself believed, verse 13. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. So now, instead of Simon the magician and the sorcerer, you have Simon the saved. Because Simon had been obedient to the gospel. Now some denominational preachers come along and say, well, he wasn't really saved. He really, you got him in your church, but he wasn't in my church. I've heard it said that way. I said, well, Simon did the same thing these Samaritans did. Were the Samaritans saved? Philip is preaching to the Samaritans, and they were baptized, men and women alike. Well, here Simon comes along. He does the same thing. Was the Samaritans saved? Well, of course they were. They received forgiveness of sin and were now in the kingdom. That means Simon would have to be saved. Simon was a saved individual. He had been converted. And he'd been obedient to the gospel by being baptized. And it specifically says, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized. He continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, I can understand I think that because not only would that be the case of the others who had observed this, but Simon is saying, wow, look at this. I always thought of myself as being a great magician. And everybody looked to me as being the great power of God. But these guys, these guys, and I don't mean to speak disrespectfully. Please don't think of it that way at all. I'm just talking to you like I would folks back in Tennessee. These guys, these guys are really doing something. It's real. I couldn't, and I know mine was not real, but I can see that they're, and he's constantly amazed. So that's what I'm focusing on right now, the fact that, He's constantly amazed at this. Now, I can understand the miracles would be an amazing thing. In fact, sometimes they're described as being wonders. 
which certainly describes how that they would be perceived by those who experience those miracles. It's a wonder. It's a sign. It's a miracle. John uses all these words to convey the idea of the miraculous work of God in the experiences and in the lives of people at that time. But this guy's constantly amazed at that, and I think for a special reason, because he's into that kind of thing. He's a magician. He's a sorcerer. And he uses all kinds of tricks and that kind of thing as an idolater. He uses all kinds of tricks and that kind of thing. Isn't it a little amazing that the Samaritans are taken in by a guy like that? These Samaritans are supposed to understand the Old Testament. These Samaritans are supposed to believe in God. Um, these Samaritans have the Pentateuch and they follow the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law, the books of Moses, but yet they're taken in by this idolater who is a uh, magician. Yeah, they are accepting both. They're accepting the old law. They're accepting what this guy, he's a great power of God here. Look at the things that they did. Ancient Israel did the same thing. Jews of the first century did the same thing. And so it's not unusual for us to see these Samaritan people gravitate to a guy like Simon. It's not unusual for us to understand that in verse 13, he is amazed at the things the apostles were able to do. Yes, sir. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Marvin brings up a good point here. Philip comes preaching in the name of Jesus. Simon is claiming himself to be somebody great, which he did, and uh, he wants all the attention, and he's getting it. But yet there's a big difference between Simon's attitude then and Philip's attitude then, and that was Philip was humbly coming, preaching, and teaching the Word of God through the name of Christ. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent them Peter and John. I wonder why they sent Peter and John up here. Now, the apostles are still in Jerusalem. And we saw that back in chapter 8, earlier part of chapter 8, how that everybody dispersed. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, no doubt at their own peril. But they all stayed at Jerusalem, and when they learned about the Samaritans receiving the Word of God, they sent Peter and John up there. Well, Peter and John would be the right ones to uh, send up there, no doubt. And Jesus said, you know, you're going to see greater things than this, and Simon uh, is one of the great things, and the gospel being preached to the Samaritans one of the great things that they would, they would see and experience, as Jesus told them, Luke chapter 9. And so they send Peter and John. But I want to back up just a minute and look at a verb, they're received. Past tense, they receive the word. To say that they received the word means that they obeyed the word. They embraced it. They accepted it. And so now they've been obedient to the word. They received the word. They've embraced it and they've accepted it. They sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, verse 15. And so now they go from 
Jerusalem down to Samaria, which would be up north from Jerusalem where it was, and I've explained that uh, geography there as to why it would use that kind of terminology that they would come down. But notice also they prayed for them, and they uh, were praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Well, keep in mind, they don't have the Bible. The Bible's not in existence yet. The truth is there. The truth is being taught and being explained by inspired teachers and preachers and that sort of thing. The gifts and the miraculous gifts that they had back then were necessary until that which is perfect has come, until the completed revelation is given. So God, in a sense, is giving piecemeal his revelation to his church as it begins in its early days, as it is needed and received. So we need some inspired instruction here. And they don't have a Bible to open up like we do. We have it today. And we can open it up and we can say, all right, turn to Acts chapter 8 and verse 14, and we all know exactly where we're going. But back then they didn't have the written revelation yet. It was coming. But it was not there yet. And they need some inspired instruction. They need truth so that they can do this and do this the right way. And so the Holy Spirit, the instruction that was to be received by the Holy Spirit is necessary. That they might, what? Here's the verb, received. Receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that's a significant historical note that Luke gives us. They didn't have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. What had they had? They were baptized. Now, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, John 5 and 32, the Bible talks about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they had received the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but they did not have any miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, showing us that the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2 and 38, and in Acts 5 and 32, is something different from the miraculous. Now, there's a couple of good books out there that wanted to equate, which I admire the men who wrote them, I really do, but I don't think it's accurate that wants to equate the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, verse 38, to the miraculous. I don't think so. No. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, they receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, if the gift, I ran into this, I was preaching in a gospel meeting in, of all places, Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, there are faithful churches there. And uh, what was the name of that fine congregation? Anyway, I ran into this particular point, and uh, one of the fellows there wanted to say that this was the miraculous in Acts 2 30. I said, I don't think so. If that was miraculous in Acts 2, verse 38, then what's the problem in Acts chapter 8? Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, verse 15. They'd already been baptized, but they had not had the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. So to be baptized, one receives forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Spirit. That's not the gifts of the Spirit. It is the gift of the Spirit, and there's a distinction to be made there. What they need here 
is the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the miraculous, maybe I should say, laying on of hands of the Holy Spirit to lead them, guide them, and direct them. Because they needed that at that particular point in time. So I think verse 15 is a good verse to remember as well in this overall discussion about the um, work of the Spirit and, and a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit in the first century context who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, verse 16. So pencil in in your margin, <coughs> Acts 2.38 and Acts 5 and 32. <coughs> They'd received the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If I gave you $10, what'd you get? You got $10. If God gives us the gift of rain, what did we get? We got rain. If God promises to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, what did you get? The Holy Spirit. Not miraculous. They had been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have any miraculous ability to do that. Acts chapter 8. During that day and time, they had to pray. Peter came and laid his hands upon them, and they prayed that they may have that. That's the whole point about this particular discussion. So God has accepted the Samaritans, as a part of the church. They don't have any miraculous work of the Holy Spirit yet. They need it, but they don't have it just as yet. And so with the Holy Spirit, they can function on their own. They don't have to call back down to Jerusalem and say, hey, what do we do about a case like this? They don't have to make any calls down there. They don't have to say, we don't know what we're doing here. What are we supposed to do? Somebody tell us what we're supposed to do. They can function on their own when they have the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide them and lead them. Now, this is for them. It's not for me because I've got the New Testament. I've already got it. I've got what they needed. I've got the New Testament right here in front of me, and I'm reading it and studying it, and I'm learning about it, and I'm learning that this particular gift was a gift for them because they didn't have the New Testament. And I learned that it was a temporary measure, Hebrews chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. That's where he went wrong. Offered them money. The laying on of the apostles' hands. Now, this was how... This particular matter was conveyed. God selected specially chosen men, the apostles, and by the laying on of their hands, they imparted special gifts of the Spirit so that the church could continue to function and grow according to God's good way and God's plan. And so when Simon saw the laying on of the apostles, hey, 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 I want this. Now keep in mind, I think, what Simon is thinking in his mind. This is the genuine article here. I want to be able to do that. Now, I've been a magician for a long time, and I've been pulling sleight of hand and card tricks and all that kind of thing in front of people, but these guys are really doing the genuine thing. I want to be able to do that. You see, I think his attitude and his motive is all wrong. Yeah. Sir. What, what do you think he saw when they laid on the hands? Did they start speaking in tongues? That doesn't really tell us, does it? All it tells us is in a general way they received 
the Holy Spirit. Now, keep in mind, speaking in different languages was just one gift. There was inspired teaching, inspired prophesying. There was different gifts of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and also chapter 14. Talk about that. So I don't know exactly what they received specifically, but I know that they received. So you ask a good question. What did they receive? They received the miraculous of the Holy Spirit, some gift sufficient for them to carry on the work of salvation and the church. They needed it. And so God gave that, gave that to, to them. And so it was sufficient for them to teach others so that faith could be produced in their hearts and they would become Christians too. So I see them as in need. And God sees them as they need the miraculous because Jerusalem's way down there and we're up here and they need help in the carrying on of the work of the church as God intended for it to do. But I think the real point is this Simon guy. Because Simon comes along and says, hey man, I want that. And I got money. And I'm willing to buy that. Now, if Simon were a modern-day TV preacher, they'd go for that because that's the way they operate. They operate on send me your money and I'll, I will um, send you a bottle of water from the Jordan River or something like that. And um, just send me your money. I was on the radio many years. I've been on the radio in Memphis. I've been on the radio in Murfreesboro, Tennessee for many years. And I'd get on the radio program and I'd say, do not send us any money. This church loves you and your soul so much, we're going to bring this to you free. And we don't want your money. And you know what people did? Sent me money. And you know what I did? I sent it back because I meant what I said. I do not want your money. This congregation loves you and your soul enough to give this to you free of charge. And I hadn't changed in that attitude. This gospel is for all, and it's free of charge. Now, we understand that the church is to be supported financially to preach the gospel. We understand that. But now people out there in this day and time have so many snake oil salesmen out there wanting to get their money that it really bothers me. And I want to make sure that I'm not identified with them. If I just get on the radio and I'm talking and preaching, somebody out there is going to say, okay, here's another one. Here's another. I don't want to be identified with that. I want them to know this gospel is for you and it's free and everybody needs it. I'm not taking your money. Now, here's a guy who's willing to pay money for this. And Peter was that kind of guy, though. He says, I'm not going to take your money. This is way out of line. Now, when Simon Peter saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, verse 18, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Now that phrase right there probably is a little stronger in the original than it is in the English. It's been washed up a little bit in the English. The phrase in the original is more like you're going to go to hell if you don't change. This will cause you to go to hell. Now the word perish is a little easier for us to accept. But the original is a little stronger than this English translation. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. You're going to go to hell with your money if you're not careful here. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Your motive is all wrong. Now, here somebody comes along and says, well, you see there, he was never really saved. Well, I've covered that point. Yeah, he was. But he went wrong here. You know, a person obeys the gospel, they repent of their sins. But what happens sometimes? Sometimes they sin again. In fact, I can guarantee it, they will. They're going to sin again. You know why? Because we've been involved in sin for so long, sometimes it's hard to break the habit. And sometimes those old habits come back up on us if we're not careful. And we've got to repent of them. And we've got to get over that. And that's what's happening to this guy right here. I believe he was a saved individual. I believe he was converted. And he obeyed the gospel and believed, was baptized. But some of those old habits coming back up on him again. And he says, hey, we got a good thing going here. <laughs> give me this gift and I'll pay you money for it. You give me this gift and I can really do something with it. And Peter said, you got it all wrong, man. You got it all wrong. Your heart's not right. You need to repent of this. You don't understand this. Yes, sir. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we well, we got to be careful that our motive is right, too. And I think Charlie's point is right. We got to be careful about our own motive here, our own heart, that our heart is right before God and we are sincere because that's the only kind of heart's going to be pleasing in the sight of God. I don't want to put a show on before others. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. And that's the one I am trying to please is to do things God's way so that I will be pleasing in the sight of God. Just like Saul, once again, he says, well, they, they forced me to do this. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, that's a good point. In First Samuel chapter 13, now Saul's saying, well, they forced me. The people forced me to do this. And, of course, Saul was just offering an excuse to Samuel as to why he offered the sacrifice. And so, let's see now. I'm in uh, this point about 20, and I don't want to skip over this. I want to take it very seriously. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. I'm in Acts chapter 8, and I'm in verse 20, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is not merchandise to be sold here. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You know what I think this guy wants to be? I'm giving you my opinion on this now. And I always try to tell you what's the difference between the Scripture and my opinion. This is my opinion. I think he wants to be an apostle. I think he wants to be as, as important in the eyes and the minds of the people as Peter and John were. I want this too. And I'll offer you money to give it to me. And I can be a big guy like you. He looks upon them as being the big guy here. And so I want to be an apostle of Christ. I want to be like you. Um, but Peter says, you're going back into sin here. This is what your problem is. Your heart is not right before God. Now, brethren, we need to examine our hearts. And we need to be careful that our hearts are right before God. Sir. Right. Well, Peter didn't tell him to get rebaptized or to get baptized. He told him to repent. Mm -hmm. That's all he told him. So he had to be a Christian first. Well, there you go. 
All right, now, Rich makes a very good point that comes up right at this particular juncture, and that is what Peter told him to do. Now, Rich is saying that this proves that he was a Christian, but that he was a fallen Christian, that he was weak, and that he needed to repent uh, of his sins. And I think that's our verse 22. Hang on now, hang on now, let me get it in here. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the attention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So what we have, and we have come to call this a second law of pardon. And that's the point I think Rich is bringing up for me here. And that is, he was told, he was not told to be baptized again. He was told to repent of his sins, confess them and repent of them so that this matter would not come upon him and not be held accountable. He was a Christian, and therefore we have a second law of pardon. Now, maybe we don't emphasize this as much as we should. We emphasize the matter of an alien Christian must uh, repent and confess and out of faith be baptized, and that's all true. I don't think we can emphasize that enough. But there's a second law of pardon here whereby it describes an individual who is a child of God, but is an unfaithful child of God. And this unfaithful child of God needs to repent of his sins and to pray. Now, I got some comments and questions going on here. Yes, ma'am. Simon's son. I don't know. Simon Jr.? Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know. You asked me a question there, but I just don't know. No, no. Okay, no, that's a different person. You got an apostle named Simon, and that's not him. This is a different guy altogether. Good question. Thank you for that. Yes, sir. That's right, Lucas. Right. Yeah. Well, you're right on that. God knows our heart. God knows what we do. God knows what we think. And we can't hide from God. We can't fool God. I think you're exactly right on that matter. And that we always need to keep that in mind. Now, I'm working on this point here in chapter 8 about what does a Christian need to do who's guilty of sin? Well, he needs to repent and pray. Um, as we see here in the case of Simon as an example. You see, when a person's obedient to the gospel... They're added to the family of God. It is the new birth, John chapter 3, verse 5. Now, what about this person who was added to the family? Well, they're no longer a faithful member of the family. And now this unfaithful member of the family will be lost if they do not repent and pray. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And this uh, probably is a good time to get this in here. And I think it's a passage we ought to keep in mind, 1 John chapter 1. Well, we have here, and these books are all about fellowship, aren't they? 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And this 1st John, a beginning Greek student, always goes to either the Gospel of John or 1st John start reading, because it's the easiest Greek in the New Testament. But it's a powerful um, 
uh, passage here, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, I'm in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses, notice the present active participle here, us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice verse 9. If we confess our sins, verse 9, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we must confess the false acts and the wicked acts that we have committed. We confess them. That means we confess them before God and we repent of them before God and God will forgive us if we're children of God, if we're wayward. Uh, This uh, cleansing continues in verse 7, so long as we're walking in the light. Walk is a metaphor for living. As long as we're living and striving and trying to do what Jesus has told us to do and the New Testament teaches us to do, then that blood continually cleanses and cleanses and cleanses. But sometimes sin comes into our life. Not sometimes, we know that it does. Then we need to confess that and repent of it and start all over again. And I've always said, this is one of the great things about Christianity. There's a lot of great things about Christianity. This is one of the great things about Christianity. You can start all over again. You can do it again. And God will forgive you that sin if you'll repent of it. And I've said many times in Bible classes and sermons, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what sin you committed. People sometimes come up to me and say, well, I don't care what you've done. That's not, you don't come to me telling me what you've done. You go to God and tell him what you've done. You go to God and confess it and repent of it. And he'll forgive you for a child of God. Yes, ma'am. Express what word? Yeah, well, forgiveness is up to God. And so he's asking them, pray for me, that God will forgive me. I don't know that there's, there may be doubt in his mind, but there's no doubt in the mind of God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. I don't think there's any doubt that God would forgive if he would repent. But it's up to God to do the forgiving because all sin is against God. Now, that's how I'd see the if possible. Is there any doubt about it? It's up to Simon to make that happen, not God. God is willing and able to forgive. He wants to forgive. But at the same time, it'll be up to Simon to genuinely repent of that and turn around. All right, somebody else along the yes, sir. No, no, please. Your question is always a good one. I'm trying to hear you because of my advanced years and age. I'm trying to, (laughs) I'm trying to hear you. The Luke. That's why I went to Luke chapter nine. 
I think Jesus, sent, Jesus said that they would experience greater things, and now they're doing that. I don't think there's any special significance about Peter and John going up there, though these are the right men to do the job. And Peter was given the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 16, and 18. This does not make him the first pope. There is no such reference of that in the New Testament. There is no reference of Peter being elevated above the rest of them. Was he important? Yeah, but so were the others. And that's another point that needs to be brought up, and I'm glad Perry brought it up. Luke doesn't tell us everything. There's a lot that went on here that Luke does not talk about. He couldn't tell us everything that went on. Uh, But he gave us what we need to know in order to produce faith, John chapter 20, 30 and 31. And so Peter and John are important people, but they're not the only ones. And I don't see them having any special significance in the New Testament church uh, other than what we read about them and what they were doing. Now, he was given the keys of the kingdom so that he could preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But look what Stephen's doing here. He's preaching to the Samaritans. And so I think all of these apostles were important, but I see no special significance to Peter in the New Testament. He certainly was not a pope, Latin term for papa. He was never that. That comes later. Who was the first pope? Probably Leo II or Boniface III, 606 A.D. That's 600 years later. I mean... That's not New Testament. What we're studying is the New Testament. We want to go by the New Testament. So thank you for asking that question. And any questions, fair game in here. Yes, ma'am? And that's, thank you for bringing that up. That's Matthew chapter 18, 18, where he says the same thing to the other apostles that he said to Peter in Matthew 16, 16 through 18. So in Matthew 18 and 18, he said the same thing to the other apostles, didn't he? So thank you for bringing that up. So Peter doesn't really get any special significance there. Uh, somebody else? Yes, sir. Well, there you go. There you go. Peter had a mother-in-law. And we have... Had a mother-in-law, there you go, was married, so we ought to pray for the poor guy, right? No, no. I'm sorry, I, I, I went too far, I apologize, I apologize, I apologize, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs>